Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. In college, I loved history, but I didn't like the dates, observed my guest today for a newspaper profile in 2010. I think I naturally gravitated toward museums. Even when I was little, I remember going to museums and being enthralled. Ingrid Nyholm-Lang continues to be enthralled by museums and in fact has made her career in mark in the museum field. A 1991 graduate of Gustavus with majors in history and Scandinavian studies, Ingrid went on to earn a master's degree in historical administration from Eastern Illinois University. In 1997, after stints at the Chicago Historical Society and the city's Swedish American Museum Center, she worked in education at the Minnesota Children's Museum. In 2007, she began her association with the American Swedish Institute, or ASI, here in Minneapolis, rising through the ranks to her current position as Director of Experience. As an enthralled museum goer myself, with a historian's interest in how they curate and present the past, I've been looking forward to speaking with Ingrid about her work and how she came to it, and it's my pleasure to welcome her to the podcast. So Ingrid, it's great to have you on. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. This is terrific. Yeah, my pleasure. And as we were saying before we started recording, we didn't really didn't really know each other at the time you were at Gustavus, although you took a, a course or so or one or more with my wife Kate, who's now retired. Um, so yeah, pleasure to connect or reconnect, as the case may be. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, as I was mentioning also before we started recording, Kate and I live just I don't know, it's a, it's a maybe twenty minute walk at the most to the ASI, but. Um, What's it like right now? Is it, It's not open, is that right? No, actually we are open. Oh. Um, ASI reopened for our second time here back on February 6th. So like many museums, um, actually throughout the state of Minnesota, it was about a year ago when the governor um, ordered the shutdown statewide. And at that point, ASI, we more or less packed up Everyone grabbed what they could and went home. Um, and we've been working remotely ever since. Um, so it's been a little bit of a challenging year, as one can imagine, in the museum field and arts and cultural field yes. overall. So we had um, ASI has a great staff. There's about 29 or 30 of us working full time. Um, before we shut down, we had an additional about 50 people who worked with us part-time. Um, and when we shut down, we had to make the really hard decision to furlough all of our part-time staff. Those were staff that were working at the front desk, that were helping with programs and events, um, teaching extra classes. And when everything shut down, those programs went away. So the other challenge we had right from the get-go is that only about half of our full-time staff actually had laptops. Hmm. There were a lot of us still working on desktops. So there was a little bit of a scramble at the start to figure out, you know, who had laptops, who didn't. Did people have laptops at home that they could work on? Could we set up VPN on everyone's computers? Um, and that was the start of COVID for us about a yeah. year ago. That's so, yeah, I mean, just the impact on work, 
how people work, including obviously in your field where you sort of ended yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. In our field, um, in the museum field, it's really about working with the public. Yeah. And all of a sudden the public was gone. Right. So it took us, um, you know, it took us a couple of weeks to kind of come to grips with where we were and what we were going to be able to do. But this is where um, the creativity and innovation comes out, um, especially in small to mid-sized museums. Um, when we have a staff of, you know, roughly 30 full-time people, it means you get to do a lot more than just your own job, if you will, by your job description. And in this case, we did. We had to figure out who knew who knew about doing virtual programs? We had never even heard of Zoom before. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was it took us probably about a month of kind of really um, both touching base with our audience and our membership and trying to figure out what is the Zoom platforms? How could we take the programs that we were currently doing at ASI pre-COVID, move them into a virtual platform? Would it work? Um, our language program moved over the first, and that worked out really well. Uh, but then we also do a lot of hands-on workshops, both in food and in handcraft. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to figure out, well, how on earth is that going to work? <laughs> and then youth and family programs and such. So it's been um, it's been a year of learning and innovation. Yeah, it's so true about innovation. I mean, it's a, I guess the silver lining of one silver lining, if there is one of this. And then it'll be so interesting. I'm a labor historian by training, so I'm just interested yeah. in this and how, you know, what might last, right? How things, whether yeah. it's higher ed, museum, office work, um, we, we will see. Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, was there an exhibit at the time you had to scramble and get out of there? Was there already yes. Yes, actually, we had just opened an exhibit about three weeks before we shut down. And that was an exhibit that we had not brought in. So ASI brings in quite a few international exhibitions. Um, this was a homegrown exhibition that we had developed and fabricated in-house. We were super excited about it. It was an exhibit called Extraordinary, and it was really about the objects and the extraordinary stories behind them. And that was a really big bummer. We had spent, you know, over a year working on this exhibition project. We opened it up. Folks were loving it. We were getting great reviews. Lots of people were coming out to see it. And then we shut down. That so, is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it really is. So we decided to um, leave the exhibition in place, obviously. And then um, we started shifting museum exhibitions around um, like many other museums were doing because we really plan almost two to three years out in advance. So um, and especially with exhibitions that are coming in internationally, you know, there might be a line of museums that will get the exhibition. It might first be out on the East Coast and then come to the Midwest and then proceed out to the West Coast. Uh, so we were all started talking with one another and kind of refiguring our calendars. Um, we also thought, you know, the shutdown was only going to last maybe a month or right. two. And 12 months later, um, we did have the opportunity to open up for a short while back in September, late September. Um, and then the governor shut everyone down again here in November. So we've had um, we've had 
two spots where we've been able to open and open exhibitions, and then both of those times we were shut down. He was hoping it stays open. So uh, yeah. if I were to go there today, or any listener mm -hmm. go there, what, um, what is, there's a protocol, I assume, mask wearing, and only wearing a certain, yes. certain number of people allowed in at a time. Yeah, absolutely. So we work really tightly with um, the Minnesota Department of Health, making sure that we're following all the guidelines. Um, nowadays, the museum is only open Thursday through Sunday from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. So that's a, um, a shortened week for us as far as open to the public. And it's all timed entry. So we ask that people go online and purchase their admission tickets in advance. And we allow a certain number of people to enter the museum every half hour. And so that way we're keeping in, you know, in total compliance with the state. And masks are obviously mandated statewide. So that's really important. But I have to say the vast majority of people who've been coming to visit the museum since we opened on uh, February 6th have been nothing but delightful. And um, everyone's really respectful about not only their own pod or their own group they're with, but, you know, making sure they're giving other people space. That's great. I'm glad to know you reopened. The, um, now, what about the, the, the acclaimed Fika, which is this terrific, uh, it's a, sort of a restaurant or cafe. Is that yeah. A little, you know? yeah, we call it a cafe, Fika Cafe. So they reopened with us on February 6th. And cafes um, have their own, uh, their own uh, capacities. But Fika has been open and serving, and they continue to do so. So quite a few people are, are ordering uh, Fika food to go, or you can uh, purchase food. And then we have socially distanced, you know, tables and chairs throughout the first floor and second floor of our Nelson Cultural Center. Wow. I, it's, as I was mentioning again, before we started recording, so we lived in walking distance. I, I didn't know you were reopening. Maybe so. And I love Fika. It's so good. Um, by the way, what does it remind me? What does Fika, is Fika mean like a coffee or what? what, what does that mean? Yeah. So Fika is both a noun and a verb in Swedish, which I think is such a great word. It literally means to take a break, to sit mm -hmm. down and have coffee and conversation. Okay. Yeah. It's a good, I disagree. And it's F-I- Ka right? Correct. Yes, yeah, correct. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good news. I mean, let's hope let's hope it continues to be uh, good news. So here you are, a museum professional with I don't know twenty five plus years in the field. Let's go back in time to um, where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm um, originally from Chicago. Oh, not like too me. Far, yeah, oh. not too far from Wrigley Field. Oh my fact. gosh. Oh, yeah. I grew so, up in Park Forest in the south suburbs. Oh, you did? Okay. My, da my, dad, my dad grew up in the city, though. I love Chicago, and I love Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so that's where you grew up. Yeah, so that's where I grew up. Um, I have to say that um, I grew up in a pretty strong Swedish-American community in Chicago. Um, like Minnesota, Chicago was one of those um, kind of historically strong Swedish communities. Uh, landing places, if you will, for Swedish immigrants. My dad came in 1956. Mm. Um, he came because he was a tool and die maker. And there was um, actually a couple of Swedish tool and die firms in the Chicagoland area. 
And they would always reach out to Sweden and get young tool and die makers who were interested in coming to America. That's and amazing. So yeah, so he had come to Chicago. Um, he didn't speak English at all, um, and which was fine because actually all of the um, the tool and die makers that worked in the tool shop, they all spoke Swedish, which was which was really kind of cool. Um, a lot of them still spoke Swedish as I was growing up, and we would, you know, stop into the tool shop in the factory. Um, and then he met my mom, and my mom is uh, first generation born in the U.S., but of Swedish background. Wow! So you're through and through. The, um, yeah. That's really interesting. My my uh, on my dad's side, I'm Greek. His parents came from Greece, and my mom's side, I'm I don't know, all American farm girl. You know, down mm-hmm. in, in Newman, yeah. Illinois, south of Champaign, Urbana. Oh, okay. Yeah. The um, near Tuscola. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, now I'm already homesick for Chicago again. <laughs> so, did where did your dad come from in Sweden, and how old was he when he when he uh, emigrated? Yeah, so my dad was 31 years old, so he was on the older end, um, and he um, was from Stockholm. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he was the only one who came to the States. So we grew up having a really small nuclear family here in the U.S., um, but uh, there were tons of aunts and uncles and cousins and, and whatnot in Sweden, and obviously still they're still there. Um, so yeah, we've, we grew up, um, I didn't get to travel to Sweden until actually I was in college. Um, but I did have quite a few aunts and uncles who had come to visit us. Um, when we were, when we were younger, they would come to Chicago. And were you, um, did you grow up speaking Swedish? I mean, was Swedish spoken in the home? Yeah, we did. We did speak some Swedish at home. Um, I would say like many, uh, first generation, American kids, um, you know, my parents would speak Swedish to us and we quite often talk English back because, <laughs> you know, we wanted to speak English like all our friends. Yeah. Um, but it was one of those things where we grew up understanding a lot and um, and probably having more of kind of that passive vocabulary, I would think I would probably call it. Um, yes, that's a good way to put yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I can I can relate my um it sounds like you have siblings too do you have a, a yeah there's four of us yeah okay yeah um I've got just I've got a, a just a one a brother younger brother but we grew up my dad didn't um unlike some of my cousins who stayed in the city who went to Greek school I think oh, and yeah. speaking Greek my dad you know he moved to the suburbs and we didn't, um, but yeah, there's a good, I, I had the passive vocabulary, mostly swear words, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and but yeah. also restaurant ordering words, which which still help me. And as my dad used to joke, you know, no matter where you are, the Greek a Greek owns this place, you know, right. whatever the cuisine is. Oh my goodness, yes, it's oh, some of yeah. the best Greek restaurants in Chicago. Oh, it's great, yeah, yeah. Greek town and Chicago. I mean. Again, the labor history, I mean, just the, the ethnic history and the labor history, including the Swedes, it's so, so, so interesting. So that's it great about really, your dad. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, did you, was your mom working too? Uh, no, for the most part, she was a stay-at-home parent okay. and uh, kind of rode herd on the four of us kids. Well, you remember um, the quote I read at the beginning, which appeared in the uh, 
Twin City Star Tribune. Yeah. Well, look, I don't know if they still have that column. It was how I got this job. But anyway, you mentioned going to remembering going to museums as a as a kid, a little kid. Yeah. What are what are some of those memories? Yeah. So you know, I really remember. Um, so so many of the museums in Chicago are on what they consider Chicago Park District property. Right. And therefore. Um, they would always have like one free day a week. And um, I really remember my mom just being like, you know, today we're going to the Adler Planetarium and we would hop on the L and go downtown or we would go to the Museum of Science and Industry or we would go to the Field Museum, uh, the Chicago Historical Society. Um, and I just remember going to those places and just always just really loving them and being very comfortable in these enormous institutions and all the interesting things that were on display. And that at that time, it was definitely more of this idea of cabinet of curiosities, right? right? Not the interactive exhibitions per se. Um, and then in high school, of course, um, we went to Chicago public high schools and you know, when you're 15 and 16 and you're like, yeah, we're really cool. We're going to hop the L and go downtown. And, and then it was like, yeah, we'll walk around the art Institute, and, you know, be like, we're sophisticated <laughs> 15 or 16 year olds. Um, and, you know, to tell you the truth, the art Institute art has never been one of those driving forces for me, but I always enjoyed just kind of the peace and the quiet. Yes. I think that you would find, especially at, at the art Institute. Yes. Um, so, you know, and even growing up in Chicago elementary schools, I think the public schools did a really great job of always, I mean, it seemed like we were always at the museum, you know, we'd be down at the the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for, mm. you know, student concerts. Um, so I think it was really a time in the 70s and the early 80s where, um you know, you were really encouraged to get out and, if you will, use Chicago properties, use that kind of cultural entities within the city. Yes. Um, and it was always, you know, good, cheap, fun and entertainment. Keep us yeah. out of trouble. Things like that. <laughs> I'm sitting here with a big grin on my face <laughs> because just thinking about getting on the L. I used to take it from the suburbs, south suburbs, it would be the IC. Mm -hmm. or, or in school, I remember in elementary school, a, a bus trip, you know, to one of the, the field museum or the museum of science and industry. And the other thing you said, which I, boy, I, I've never, I've never really been able to articulate it. You just articulated it for me. You, you said you felt comfortable uh, in, in, in the museums. And yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I, I can, that's, ex that's, that's exactly how I would phrase it. I will phrase it from now on. I feel that the second I walk in, I can't, I can't think of a museum that I've entered anywhere where I haven't felt that. And then, yes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes the, the peace and quiet too, it depends, not so much at the Museum of Science and Industry, <laughs> right. <laughs> all the bustle. Um, yep. that, and, and of course, Chicago, I mean, so many of those museums, right, were part of the Columbian Exposition going over the, yes. uh, you know, the 1890s. It's really, really awesome. I'm, I'm envious. I mean, I'm, I'm envious of your public school experience in Chicago and going to all those museums. The Art Institute was definitely a museum we went to a lot as a family. My dad painted uh, as a oh, hobby. Okay. He, he said he went to school there. I never verified that. Or I don't know what kind of, but anyway, but we went there often. Um, by the way, have you been to the new 
Uh, I was just there a couple of years ago. Their new, sort of a new wing and a new courtyard. God, it was gorgeous. It was pre-COVID. Yeah, oh, yeah it's no, just so I have it. Yeah, I have it's it been beautiful. there. It's yep. beautiful. I love it. Oh, good. So, so um, you know, I mean, I suppose one could one could assume, well, you know, you've got the Swedish background, you're going to a Swedish Lutheran college, but is that the case? And what, what, what brought you to Gustavus? Yeah, actually, um, that wasn't the case, to tell you the truth. Um, so first of all, I would have to say that um, I fought pretty hard for the privilege to go to college. Mm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't assumed in our family that you would go to college. Um, it was definitely a very trade oriented family. Mm -hmm. One of my brothers is a tool and die maker, like my dad was, um, the other one, uh, owns a bar in Chicago, which is also really cool. Um, so when I, I don't know exactly what it was to tell you the truth, but I want to say, um, there was a representative of Gustavus who actually came to my high school and how one way or another, if one of my teachers was like, you know, there's a school up in Minnesota and it's kind of Swedish. Maybe (laughs) you should go check it out and go talk to the rep. And, um, I went to a technical high school. I went to Lane tech. Oh yeah. And so the vast majority of students at Lane Tech were not on a college track. Um, I took drafting and numerous shop classes. Um, So it it wasn't a school where, once again, students were on the track to go to college. So long story short, I met this representative from Gustavus. I started learning about the school. I thought, oh, that would actually be kind of cool and interesting. And my junior year in high school, Gustavus had put together like a bus that was going from Chicago through Northern Illinois, picking up students to come up and check out this college. And quite truthfully, I was like, I had nothing better to do my junior year for spring break. And I was like, yeah, let's this. Sure. Why not? This sounds like a really cool idea. Um, And I have to say, we drove on interstate 90 crossed over into Minnesota because I'd never been in Minnesota before. And there's some of those beautiful river bluffs right there. And that was my first impression of Minnesota. And I thought, wow, this place is really gorgeous. And then kind of my love for Minnesota grew from there. And I just, I really enjoyed my time on the Gustavus campus. It was also another one of those spots where I felt really comfortable. Um, my high school was larger than Gustavus at the time. So it was, um, it certainly wasn't a feeling of being overwhelmed for me. No. Um, if anything, a lot of my friends would give me such a hard time. Um, because at the time there was just one stoplight in St. Peter and, you know, within what half a mile radius of my house growing up in Chicago, there was probably, I don't know, seven or eight stop stoplights. Sure. Um, so that's kind of how I landed up at Gustavus. That's um, a great story. So are you, yeah. the, are you the first in your, uh, at least in your immediate family, to, to go to college? Yeah, yeah right. both on both sides of the ocean, I was the first one to go to college. That's fantastic. And then um, my sister eventually went to college. She didn't start college until she was probably 27 or 28. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, it was 
it was, like I said, it wasn't a foregone conclusion in our family. So um, I kind of had to, I had to fight a little bit to, for the privilege to go. Yeah, well, good for you. And you went and I, um, my dad did not go to college. He was a hairdresser. His, his dad was a barber in Oak Park. Uh, and then my mom, I think, went to, well, she went to Eastern, where you went, I think. She did a yeah. teaching, oh. teaching degree there two years and then taught for a little bit, I think, in a one-room schoolhouse, she always said. And I didn't like it and <laughs> sold sporting goods and met my dad and, and the rest was history. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I know Gustavus takes pride in rightly in, in the, the number of first-generation college students it, it's had and I think still has. So that's a neat story. By the yeah. way, where's your brother's bar? When I hear Chicago bar, again, I get so homesick. There's nothing oh, like a Chicago bar. <laughs> yeah, his bar is on the northwest side of Chicago, not too far from Pulaski and Irving Park. Oh, yeah. Okay. So not too far from the junction of Kennedy and Eden's Expressway. Yeah. Oh, boy. Makes yeah. you, makes you want to get on a plane right now. <laughs> People who haven't been in Chicago bar, you don't know what you're missing. Right? The, um, yeah. So you came to Gustavus, did you, um, and you wound up majoring in, in history and Scandinavian studies, um, the double major. Did you did you know already that you were going to do that? I mean, did you know what you're going to major in? No, not really. I think um, I went to college thinking about business or international relations, and more because of growing up the way I did, I always thought about um, trade, like what was going to be your job? Sure. Um, I have to say I took macroeconomics my very first semester, Gustavus, <laughs> and I was like, oh boy, mm -hmm. this is not, this is not going to be my this is not where I'm going to be happy. Yeah, we call um, that in the history department, we call that course uh, <laughs> the funnel to the history major. <laughs> yeah, and um, I don't even remember who my advisor was, like my freshman year. Um, but I remember just being almost in a panic because I was like, well, you know, well, what am I going to do? Or, you know, what am I going to be? And you know, um, this advisor, whoever this gentleman was, said, um, what do you love to, what do you, if you had a day off, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I love to just hang out at the Chicago History Museum. And he just looked at me and he's like, well, then maybe you should take some classes in history. Yeah. And uh, so that's I think how I landed in that direction, um, and actually, I think it was one of one of uh, Kate's courses on women's history. That was probably one of my first classes at Gustavus. Um, and then Scandinavian studies, I just always figured that I would have a double major, and I would be able to really work on my Swedish language skills and you know learn more about my culture. Um, and then. You know, knowing that I really wanted to to have the opportunity to study in Sweden, um, so yeah, I would say, you know, I took um, so that's that's if you will how I landed up in history. I also took a great deal of geography courses, mm -hmm. especially with Bob Douglas. Oh yeah, one um, of the greats. Yes, one of the greats, and um, just really enjoyed geography as well. Um, and I. You know, when I, I remember telling my parents that I was going to major in history and Scandinavian studies, and it was like, well, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> yes. And then my mom was like, well, are you going to be a history teacher? 
And I kept on thinking, no, I don't see myself in, a, in teaching history in a classroom, but I wasn't exactly sure. So I think I just kind of, you know, worked my way around that question. Yeah, we still, we still get that question. You know, I yeah. don't, what, whoever that advisor was, that's great advice. That's um, advice we still give, which is, you know, especially at a liberal arts college, do, do, do what you love. Start out doing what you enjoy. Yeah. And um, when you get that education, it really doesn't matter so much what your what your major is. Um, you know, no matter what. I mean, well, you know, history majors are in all walks of life. Oh, example, absolutely. Yeah. And you, you know, go ahead. Yeah, oh, go ahead. and I was going to say, you know, quite often when I work, I work with a fair amount of uh, like high school and college students um, through a couple of different programs in Minneapolis, and um, you know, quite often. They're, they're first generation that are going to be going to college. And we talk about, you know, I share a little bit of my experience and, you know, the questions that they are getting from their parents are the same questions I was getting from my parents 30 years ago. Yes. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people ask, well, you know, what's good about history, learning history? And, you know, nowadays we have Google, right? So you can Google almost anything you want and get the dates and the, you know, and all that information. But I think what history really does is it teaches you how to how to read and digest information. It teaches you how to formulate an argument. It teaches you how to write. Um, and it teaches you to, to kind of step back and take a little bit more of a of an observer's view on, on things that are happening around you. You know, not only thinking about things in the past, but, you know, things that are happening right now. Right. Um, and that's one thing that I think a lot of museums talk about is how do you begin to collect the near history? How do you begin to collect the now? Um, and it's one of those things where I think um, that's where we're studying history really helps people. And you don't have to be in a history field for that, that, that. Same, those same talents apply whether you're in the business field or in exactly. communications or whatever it might be. I'm just thinking if we ended the podcast this moment, I'd be happy because yeah, that's the, I mean that's that's a great pitch for for studying the past and learning about the past. Um, it's so true. Everything you said is absolutely true, um, and I think we'll come maybe come back to you know collecting sure. the point about collecting history now. Perhaps like that's that that also interests me. Um, so in Scandinavian studies, I'm guessing it was professors uh, Roland Thorstensen, Robin McKnight, Byron Nordstrom, those, those yep, people those, you worked with? Yes, those are the trifectas. Yeah. Yes. And, and I mean, how absolutely fortunate. Um, also, just master, master teachers in their own yes, right. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, I have a special spot in my heart for both Roger and Roland and Byron, for that matter. Um, I think Roger, I took one of my very first classes with Roger and um, once again, coming from a technical high school, I did not know how to write. I think I'd maybe written one paper in high school before I left for Gustavus. Um, and thank goodness I had someone like Roger who, after I turned in my first paper, kind of pulled me aside and said, we're going to teach you how to write. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, what, I mean, just such a talented writer in his yes. own right so you know yeah, yeah so you know that was that was fantastic um 
I met my husband at Gustavus, and it was oh. in a class with Roland Torstensen. So, no kidding. What's yeah, your husband's so name? My husband's name is Steve Lang. He Steve was a Lang. chemistry major. Okay, um, and we just that. happened to be taking a Roland J term class on cross country skiing. Oh, <laughs> and Roland, and, who's from from Sweden? Who's from yeah. Sweden? Exactly. And yeah. then, of course, Byron. I mean, he's been nothing but supportive um, of not only you know, history classes that I took at Gustavus, but really kind of helping, you know, direct me at Uppsala. And then, um, and ever since then, and obviously we keep him quite busy at the American Swedish Institute. He's a great volunteer, whether it's giving tours or um, helping us do research. Uh, Sometimes I joke and I say, I need to dial a historian because I have a question. Um, So, yeah, it, you know, just three fantastic, fantastic yeah, people. That's great. The um, Byron, um, also, of course, was a terrific historian of, of Sweden, Scandinavia. Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe the, the historian of, of that uh, in terms of his, his books and scholarship. By the way, do you know Joy Lintelman? Did you ever have? She's another alum. Yes, yes, I get she's, Yeah, she's, she's another Gusty alum. Yeah, yeah she's written true. some really fantastic books, especially yes. looking at um, women within kind of the Swedish Swedish American immigration story. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I recorded with her. Uh, yeah, she's terrific. Her book is terrific. Um, the, so. At what point? Well, you know what? Before we come to your museum work, let's 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 go to let's go to Sweden briefly. So you did sure. go, you studied abroad, and Gustavus rightly prides itself on the number of students who uh, study abroad, whether it's in January term or for a semester or for, I guess, in your case, the academic year. Yeah, yeah. So Uppsala, Sweden. Tell us a little bit about that. What were you a junior, and and what what did you study? Yeah. So. Um, I went, so I, I'm most fortunate. I'm a Swedish citizen. I have Swedish citizenship because of my dad. So um, I studied at Uppsala University. Um, but because of my citizenship, I was also able to do some additional, some additional, I don't know what to call it, stuff, activities while I was in Sweden. Um, so I did go to Uppsala and I did study Swedish as a foreign language student. And then I studied history. And when you study history at Uppsala University, um, Swedish universities, you go in and you study a line. And so what that means, it's not that kind of liberal arts education that we have here in the US. So when you study history in a term, you would have four history classes a term, and you would study one class, you have a couple of reading days, and then you take an exam. And then you move on to the next class, study, take the exam. So you're only taking one class at a time. And um, actually that worked out, I think, really well for me. Um, I was the only American student um, studying in the history program at that time. And it is, um, you learn a lot about your own history by studying your own history in a different country. Oh yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah, Because there were a couple of times where, you know, we were talking about the U S and I was sitting there going, um, yeah, no, I, I, this is now how it's been taught in the U.S. <laughs> and in Uppsala University, too, at least at the time, and I don't know so much nowadays, it had a little bit more of a Marxist point of view when it was looking when you're studying history. And so, you know, you were really looking at it was 
a lot more socioeconomic um, theme within within the history classes. Um, so I was able to do that, but I was also able to do things like I worked when I was in Sweden. Um, and Uppsala is just, it's an amazing city, oh. just an outstanding university. I want to ask you about that. Where, where exactly, how far is it from Stockholm? Where, where, where yeah, it? it's just about, about a 15 minute train ride north of Stockholm. Oh, it's close. Okay. Yeah. So, and then, like I said, I had all my aunts and uncles and my cousins. And so for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by nigh homes everywhere. <laughs> um, and you know, every once in a while, my my aunt would, well, not even once in a while, it was probably about every other week, my aunt would call me up, the, the matriarch of the family, and she would be like, um, how are you? And I'm like, fine. She goes, great, we'll see you for dinner on Sunday. <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I'll be happy to be there. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So it was, um, it was, it was phenomenal. Have you been able to get back to Sweden since that time? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, it took a little while, but um, I would say in the last 10 years or so, I've been able to go maybe four or five times. Wow. I've never been. I want to go. I desperately want to go. Um, and it's, one, it's definitely one of the things that attract. I, growing up, I don't know about you, growing up in Chicago, uh, when I wasn't growing up in a Swedish or Swedish and Swedish slash slash Swedish American family, I had not heard of Gustavus. But when I learned about it, I learned first that some excellent historians had gone there, including James McPherson, the great Civil War yeah. historian, and Sidney Alstrom, the great historian at Yale for a long time, McPherson at Princeton. Uh, so that, okay, I sold. And then it was the Scandinavian, the Swedish uh, part of it that really got me. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the Vietnam War and you know, subject to the to the, to the draft and um, thinking about Sweden's opposition to the war and all thinking of the movies and the design and so that and coffee. I mean, you know, I just yeah. I thought this sounds like a pretty cool cool place. I didn't get the Lutheran part at all because that was not part of my tradition, but uh, I certainly got the Swedish part. Um, so you you come back, uh, you finish your senior year, I guess it is at Gustavus. At what what point did you did you know like I want to go into museum work, or, or, or did that happen only subsequently after after graduation? Yeah, I think that probably ha I, you know that's a very good question. I don't think I think it probably happened more after I left Gustavus. Um, when I graduated Gustavus, it was economically not a real. Uh, positive time here in the U.S. And so I did go back home to Chicago and my first job was working for a brokerage firm in downtown Chicago. And I had the kind of the same reaction to that job as I did to um, my macroeconomics class, <laughs> but it was a job and therefore, <laughs> and I think it was around that time that I really started thinking that I wanted to work in museums um, and I started looking at some graduate programs, and there was a, a graduate program in public history at Loyola University, Chicago, and I knew I couldn't afford it, but I started looking into, um, into Loyola and found out that if you work there full time, you could take up to two graduate classes free a semester as a benefit. And so I worked on finding a job at Loyola University. And that's how I started graduate school. 
So I was working full time and then started taking graduate courses in public history. And as much as I enjoyed classes in public history, I realized that um, what I really wanted in the museum world was um, more uh, more training and um, and coursework in material culture exhibitions, museum education, and so. Um, I was looking around the U.S. and, you know, obviously some of the, the best programs are out east. Cooperstown, New York is kind of sure, the, the granddaddy yeah. of them all. Right. Um, but there was this program down in eastern Illinois in historical administration. And looking at the curriculum, I realized it really kind of hit upon what it was that I wanted. Um, so... It was something that I knew I was going to work towards. Um, in the meantime, I had had the f opportunity for my first museum job, the Chicago Historical Society. I worked as a referenced archivist. And um, so I took that job and then put off any other kind of thoughts of graduate school for a year or two um, because I was really loving my work there. I worked with a fantastic head of the archival uh, department. His name was um, uh, Ultra Archibald, <clears throat> excuse me, Archibald Motley Jr. Oh, great uh, name. <laughs> yeah, his uh, his father was uh, African American uh, painter in Chicago. His mom was white. Um, so just even talking to him about growing up in a biracial family in Chicago, but he was the type of archivist that, I mean, he knew everything that was in the collection. Yeah. And so um, it was a really great start to understanding about working in a museum. And that I was on, I was on uh, grant money and the grant money dried up. And so then I was like, well, this is a perfect time to go finish my graduate degree. <laughs> uh, and that's when I went to Eastern Illinois and I was able to, with the coursework I had already done in public history, I finished my degree down there in a year. And I had a, a fellowship with um, the last independently owned telephone company in Illinois. Uh, it was helping create a, um, an institutional archive for them to not only talk about their, what was at the time going to be their 100th anniversary of being a telephone company owned by a family, um, but also just trying to get them to understand, you know, records management and, and what needs to be kept to tell the story of their their company in the future. Yeah, that's really cool. I think, you know, I tell students sometimes, look, I mean, corporations, companies, you know, whether they're bigger, they, they, they need historians, they need archivists, right, to manage all, oh, yeah. that, all that history. Um, that's really cool. I saw that on your CV and I wondered, yeah, that, 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 I bet that was fun. Yeah, oh, it was. It was. And it was great living in downstate Illinois. Um, it was, uh, it's a very different Illinois than yes. Chicago. And um, there was a large Amish community, just about two towns over. Yeah. And so when I would go to um, my fellowship, the company was in Mattoon, Illinois. Right. And you would go into Mattoon and, you know, there'd be cars and horses and buggies on the streets. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah, just another one of those kind of 
wonderful life experiences where you're like, okay, this is different. Yeah, cool. I have been there more than once, um, and Mattoon. And then, you know, by the way, when you said downstate Illinois, again, smile on my face. That's a, mm-hmm. I mean, when I came to Minnesota, I, that's the first time I, you know, outstate Minnesota. Right, right. We, we talk about downstate. downstate. That's what, that's yeah, what we grew up exactly. with. Exactly. And that's where my cousin still, still farms, a family farm. My mom's size still in the still in the family. Um, so, you know, you've, you've, you've had this you know, really interesting career, um, most, mostly with um, ASI. I mean, that's where you've been for, what, since about 13, 14 years now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it's just fascinating to me what, what you've done. There's the education work. There's the community engagement piece. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the um, – We'll get to you, what you what you do as the director of experience in, in sure. a bit, but what 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 is it? What does community engagement involve if you're working for, let's say, as you were for the Minnesota Children's Museum or even now the Swedish Institute? Yeah, so you know, I think um, probably the best way to talk about it is for what for ASI and and what it is we do and and what we do and why we do it. Um, when I came to ASI, we were in the process of a strategic plan. And at that time, we switched the mission statement of the institution. Um, prior to that, ASI had a very traditional mission statement, like many historical institutions at the time. It was to collect, preserve, and interpret the history of, and then you add in the, the, the pieces, right? Swedish American community or whatever, whatever. Um, and when I came to get uh, to ASI, um, ASI sits in the middle of the Phillips West neighborhood in Minneapolis. Right. And it was never a Swedish neighborhood. It never will be a Swedish neighborhood. And yet here is ASI smack dab in in South Minneapolis. And so when I arrived at ASI um, and I would walk the neighborhood, um, talk to people, it is really a neighborhood of of newly arrived immigrants, right? A lot of East African, a lot of Mexican, Guatemalan. Um, It is a vibrant and diverse community. And so there were, there was no doubt about it. There were there were some great opportunities there for us to figure out how to how to live and work in a neighborhood. I think that's the other thing that's pretty unique about ASI as a museum. Most museums don't have the opportunity to sit in a neighborhood. So ASI moved towards a new mission statement, um, which is to be a gathering place for all people um, and explore themes of arts, culture, the environment, um, with enduring links to Sweden, because we are the American Swedish Institute. So when I, um, when I came to ASI, I was really fortunate, and we still are super fortunate, to have Bruce Karstadt as our CEO. And I really wanted to start working more with the Phillips West neighborhood. These were the kids and the families who literally walked by our building every day. Yes. And so I started reaching out um, to a couple of neighborhood schools. We have Head Start program in our neighborhood. We have assisted living, subsidized housing in our neighborhood. 
And it was really starting to have a discussion and just being a neighbor. Um, always being able to say thank you for being our neighbor and being part of the neighborhood. Um, we got really involved in the Phillips West Neighborhood Association and we still are. Um, and it was more about just, um, and I guess this is maybe where some of my notions of community engagement perhaps are slightly different than other colleagues in different museums. It wasn't ever about me going out and teaching about Swedish American history or Swedish American culture or Swedish American art. It was more about um, what were the needs in the community and talking to people and then saying, okay, if these are the needs, then what are the resources? How do we work together to create a more vibrant and healthy community? And that's just fantastic. I think yeah. it's, just, it's absolutely fantastic. It must be so rewarding. Oh, the it's, other, you know, it's it, sorry to interrupt, but the, the other yeah. thing that um, I'm thinking of, you know, like when I think about this even with Gustavus or even Minnesota, you know, people think, you know, they think, well, Sweden or Scandinavia, all white, you know. But wait a second. You know, who knows anything about Sweden today, right? Or Scandinavia. I mean, the, 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 the diversity, the immigrant experience. Um, there'd be, be ways I would think to even connect along along those lines with immigrant populations in your in the museum's neighborhood. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and we actually have um, kind of two major programs that we've developed over the years, and one of them is called the Story Swap, mm. and it is a program that we co-created with. Wellstone International High School, which is the new arrival high school, or one of them for, for Minneapolis public schools. Um, and I think that the other interesting thing, the way we've gone about this is kind of in humble learning, I think is one way uh, that I hear it being spoken of. We, the museum, don't have the answers. We, the museum, don't have to be the authority. We, the museum, can have questions and ask questions and then stop talking and start listening. And so StorySwap was a program that we, we co-created with Wellstone. They were looking for ways to support their newly arrived high school students, many of them arriving to Minneapolis on their own without families. And trying to help them place themselves in kind of the historical continuum of immigration in the U.S. And ASI was in a terrific spot to do that. Yes. ASI, the institution has been around since 1929. And so there is a story to be told about saying, this is how many of our members of our community arrived in Minnesota, but the story doesn't end there. The story just starts there. Right. And it's what happens to all of the generations that come thereafter? Um, and in many cases, for a lot of these students that we work with, they've never been to a museum before because they're from a country where museums are for the top 1%. What does it mean for a museum? How can a museum support that vibrant, healthy community? And so what we did is we started pairing up Swedish American elders with high school students at Wellstone. That's great. And, and it, was, it was just that. It was about swapping stories. It was also about swapping food. Students would come to ASI and we'd do the full Swedish smorgasbord. Um, and then the elders, we would go to Wellstone High School and the kids would bring in 
food of their home countries. And depending on the year, you know, it, it varied if it was more East African or if it was more South American or even, even um, uh, uh, Asian or whatever it might be. And that was one program that we started uh, fairly early on and, you know, just continued to work on because there's magic that happens when you get high school students to sit down with elders and the elders see past the droopy pants and the <laughs> attitudes or the ear pods in the ears. Um, and they really are connecting with these students and their new lives here in the U.S. What and a other, fabulous program. Wow. Yeah, it's, it has really just been fantastic. Yeah, that, that's just fantastic. And again, for people, even even some people who grew up in Minnesota may not just understand just how diverse this this state really is. Um, I can't remember how many languages are spoken in the Minneapolis public school system. I was, I was staggered by that. But that's a, I just love the way that sounds. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. The um, now is that part of your talk a little bit about your your current position. Uh, which is director of experience. (laughs) What does that mean? I mean, it seems like you almost do everything. Yeah. So first of all, um, I'm, I'm just part of a larger team. Um, So there are right now we have uh, 13 full-time people. So roughly half of the museum's full-time staff are in the experience department. And what the experience team is, um, is a group of individuals that we cover museum collections exhibitions, programs, and visitor services. So if you will, the experience that anyone might have in coming to ASI and visiting us in person, or right now because of COVID, visiting us online or taking an online virtual class or whatever it is. So my current position is really, it's being a team lead for a group of super creative, highly talented Um, energetic, enthusiastic team that believes in engaging with the public. And that means everything from um, in collections work, making sure that our collections are are being managed and that we have both physical and intellectual control over the objects. It also means that we are working, you know, as, as fast as we can as a smaller institution to make sure that our collections are accessibly are, are accessible via digital means on our website. Um, within the exhibitions department, it means combing the Nordic countries for exhibitions that we think people in the upper Midwest would really love. It also means thinking about our audience um, and being audience focused. What does our audience, what are they interested in seeing? What are they interested in hearing? Programs runs the gamut from, we have a couple of programs for our youngest visitors, our early childhood visitors, like Babies at the Castle and Kids at the Castle, (laughs) where we're giving early childhood the time and the place to come and play at the museum, because play is that which is most important for them, up through handcraft cooking classes. We run one of the largest Swedish language programs in the country. We have over 250 active adults taking Swedish language courses. And then visitor services, which is every time you walk in the door, Greg, and you'll see people sitting at the admission desk at ASI and welcoming people and 
um, answering questions and making sure that um, people are enjoying their experience while at ASI. So it's actually, it's a really cool, it's a really cool job. This year has been a lot stressful, um, but it is, uh, you never do the same thing twice. Yeah. Um, and to that end, you know, it keeps you on your toes. Right. No, just reading, reading the description on your, on your CV, it sounds, it sounds like that's what I was saying. You'd never be bored. Um, always new challenges, always interesting. And yeah, you didn't want to be director of experience amid pandemic, but you know, you can add yeah. that to your, <laughs> that to your yeah, resume exactly. as well. By the way, I've, yeah. uh, it's a, it's one, it's a very friendly museum. It's very welcoming. That's one thing I love about it. Also just beautiful. I mean, there's the old, the mansion, but then the, the new, uh, or newer wing is just stunning. Exactly. Just yeah. love it. The, yeah. um, you know, I mean, the thing about, what you're describing it's so i mean it's it's different right and we even we were growing up um in museums they were they were i mean as much as i felt comfortable in them you did too they were sort of formidable i mean i don't think they were maybe i'm wrong they don't see i don't think there was public facing as as, you know the way the way you describe finding you know finding out where the audience is what are they interested in right rather than just here's what we have come be interested in this right yes so you know, the museum world has definitely moved farther away from being the authority voice, right? Um, and so to a certain extent, you're absolutely correct. But even think about it, um, one of the ways I love to think, and I think is a great example, even think about zoos. Um, Greg, when you and I were growing up and we'd go to Brookfield Zoo or Lincoln right. Park Zoo, yeah. um, in order to see, if you will, in order to see the animals, quite often our parents would have to pick us up yes. and hold us up high. If you go to a zoo nowadays, you'll see those barriers are gone. You'll see that the glass goes all the way to the floor so that whether you're a small child or you're a person in a wheelchair, that you have the same accessibility to the experience. And I would say in, in many museums, this has been the track that many museums have been on and there are museums that do better at it. And there are those museums that still need to do more work. And um, it is about knowing your audience and about giving up control. Yes. And and one of the things um, you'll find for a lot of, not a lot, there are some museum people that have a very hard time giving up control and I think that's one thing that we do very good at ASI. Um, we do that very well. And the fact that, you know, we have community curators that come in. Our holiday exhibitions are put together by community curators. We'll give them the theme. We'll help support them along the way. But it's really for that community to decide what it is they want. What's the story that they want to tell? Um, and for those people who don't understand what we do for the holiday experience, we've always had a, more of a Nordic approach to the holidays where we're, we're highlighting the five Nordic countries. For the last, I don't know, probably 10 years now, we've always invited a sixth cultural community to join us, whether it be the Jewish Community Relations Council, uh, the Mexican-American Business League of Lake Street, 
uh, Russian Museum of Art, the mm. Czech and Slovak American uh, community. This coming holiday season will be the Hmong Museum. Oh. And so it, it is just, once again, giving... Um, giving communities the opportunity to tell their own story. We don't have to do it for them, uh, but it's also about expanding audiences. It means that, yes, ASI has access to their audience, but that means that, that their community has access to the ASI audience. Right. And so it does, it does give us the opportunity to help share a little bit more of, if you will, cultural competence, um, understanding that, you know, um, not everyone in Minnesota celebrates Christmas. Exactly. Not everyone in Minnesota celebrates Christmas the same way. Right. Um, and so, you know, we do get some people who joke around and they'll come in and they'll be like, I'm not Swedish. Can I be here? And our <laughs> answer is absolutely. Yeah. A lot of our staff is are not Swedish. And that's great as it should be because it, ASI isn't just about Swedish Americans. It isn't just for Nordic Americans. Um, and, and that's something that we're working, we're working on every day. That's just fantastic. I think it's great. Um, and I, I agree just what I've seen. Um, I haven't attended, but I've been heard about some of those Christmases. They sound like fun. And, you know, the way, um, what you just said a minute ago about giving up control. I mean, I remember one of the most important things I ever read about teaching, I don't know when I read it, but many years ago, was about exactly that. And you need to give up control and how hard that is, right? We're the experts, we think. And in some ways we are, and in some ways you are too. But uh -huh. how do you let go of some of that and, and listen, whether it's to students or to, uh, to the community? So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And actually here, I think here's a really... Here's a really fun and concrete example to that. Um, what preschoolers need, they, they have no concept of time. The concept <laughs> of time for children really doesn't come until they're almost eight or nine, 10 years old. And so uh, I think there are, there are many historical museums that feel like uh, when they're working with preschoolers, you know, it's like, what is that content? What's that content we can give them? And it's really starting from the place of the learner. It's saying, what are preschoolers interested in? Um, numbers, shapes, colors. Um, so we've been able to do a lot of fun programs at the museum with like, let's find all the squares in the building. Or, mm -hmm. you know, hop on, you know, we have this beautifully uh, recreated carpet in the grand hall in the mansion. Find a blue flower. Let's hop on a blue flower today. Let's dance. In the summertime, it's about making sure that students have safe places to play in the neighborhood. We have great outdoor space. Quite a few summers, we've done sprinkler Mondays. <laughs> we bring out the hose and the sprinkler, and you know the preschoolers come over with their groups. They have their bathing suits on, and we just run through the sprinkler on the grass <laughs> lawn. And it's it's once again it's meeting the community. What is it that they need, and then how can we help fill those needs? Yeah, you're a you're a community resource, obviously, in so many yes. important ways. Wow, I could keep going. This is so interesting, and we yes. didn't get to. I want to talk a little bit more about the collections. So we're going to have to come back and do this another time. That There's a lot good. more to talk about. Um, yeah. 
keep up the great work. And now it's about, uh, we're finishing here about 11 o'clock. And boy, if I didn't have to grade, I, I think I'd meet you at two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. For well, we'll have to do that shortly. We will do that. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. Um, it's a great, it's a great museum as people know who've been there. Um, just, just architecturally, it's fantastic. He and I did a tour once, I think, not with Byron, but with some other of the of the mansion. It was really fun. Yeah. So congratulations on on. Uh, I know you've had this position for a bit, but still, it's it's quite exciting. Um, it's great to catch up with you and learn about what you've been doing. All the best, and Thank we will you. definitely connect in person uh, soon. You may even see me on one of those sprinkler days. <laughs> yes, please do. All right. Great to <laughs> chat, and take good care. Thank you so much, Greg. Bye bye. You're welcome. Thank you. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs>